Now, as I mentioned in my opening remarks, this is our last, last week in Exodus until the end of the summer. We're closing out this first section, and we're doing so with a text that documents the spontaneous, heartfelt celebration of the Israelites in response to the salvation that God has won for them. In the first 18 verses, we have what is known as the Song of Moses. you got to love the creativity that Moses had with the title of his song, like the Song of Moses. And then you follow that up with a song from Miriam there in verse 21. But collectively, we have a really awesome title that this has been given, uh, the Song at the Sea. Now, why has this been given the title, The Song at the Sea? Because it was sung at the sea. It was sung on the other side of the Red Sea upon after the Israelites had made their way through and been delivered by God's grace. Actually, if you would, look at me back in a little bit of context here. Chapter 14, beginning in verse 29. Exodus chapter 14, verse 29. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And what happens here now, church, as a result of their belief? What do we see as the natural response to a people who have been redeemed by God's grace? They begin to sing in celebration. Look with me at chapter 15, picking up in verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. 
till your people, O Lord, pass by, to the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Your, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. For the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So standing by the sea, upon the seashore, the sea that they had just passed through in faith by the grace of God, the redeemed began to sing a song of salvation, which brings us to point one in the reality that God's people sing. God's people are a singing people. And what we see from the text is that God's people sing both individually and collectively. Second part of verse 1, Moses saying, I will sing to the Lord. Personally, he's saying this, I will sing to the Lord. Moses is singing, and individually, everyone else of the Israelites, they are singing in response to all the Lord has done for them. So back to the first part of verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So the Lord acted, and the people, yes, individually, but collectively sang in celebratory response to God's actions. They sang. They're singing people. Now look with me at verse 21. And Miriam sang to them. Now who's them? Well, we see there that the to them here is actually masculine, and it's referring to the people of Israel in verse 1. Meaning it appears that verses 1 through 18 are actually the men who are doing the singing in verses 1 through 18. And then verse 21 is telling us it's the women who are doing the singing. Because we look at verse 20, then, that's after this first group finishes singing, and we see this is a masculine group, and that's after the men finish singing, Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Now, I would have loved to have watched this. This isn't some formal, prim, and proper choral concert with like just the black robes and somebody singing in a language that you don't understand and you're all, no. Like they are singing in celebration. They're celebrating through song that they have been redeemed. It's a heart cry that is coming out. And what are they singing? The exact same thing that the men just sang. Look at verse 21 and how verse 21 and verse 1 are exactly the same. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's a song of salvation being sung by all of God's people. you got men and women, young and old, everyone singing in response to the work that God has miraculously done in their life in bringing about their salvation. 
And what this is for us as the church, what this is is a beautiful reminder of how the whole church is called to sing and offer the same kind of praise to God for the salvation that he has worked and obtained in our life through Christ. It's a reminder that we are people who are to sing praise to our great God. So we don't just sing because, like, because we have good voices. If that were the case, I'm out. Like, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Like, that's it. The only tunes that I can carry are the iTunes. I know, bad joke. But that's all that I can do. No musical ability whatsoever other than hitting play. It doesn't mean that we're not called to sing. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have a desire to sing. It's a song of salvation that is welling up within us. Now, we sing as a natural response to what Christ has done for us. Just like we see with the Israelites. Praise is the natural response from those who have experienced God's grace. That's what saved people do. We praise God. And the pattern we see throughout the Bible is that this praise so often comes in the form of song. Phil Riken in his commentary on Exodus points out in Job chapter 38, verse 7, it tells us that when God had made the world and created the world, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. But the singing didn't stop there. It only continued. It continued on through the Old Testament and not just here in Exodus, but whenever we see God redeeming his people. In Judges chapter 5, when Israel defeated Jabin and Sisera, Deborah and Barak, Barak sang for joy. They celebrated through song. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, King David sang when God delivered him from his enemies. The reason the Psalms even exist, they, they exist because they're songs. They're songs in response and praise I think, Psalm 4, I think of Psalm 40, which describes God lifting David out of the slimy pit and setting him on a solid rock. And how did David respond? With song. He responds with singing, saying he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Has God put a new song in your heart, a song of praise to God? And when Israel returned home from exile... An exile that they didn't know they would ever return from. When they returned home, they returned home just as Isaiah prophesied. How? Singing. Isaiah 51, long before this return ever happened, he said, The ransomed of the Lord, those who have been bought and purchased and redeemed, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. All throughout the Bible we see God's people are a singing people in response to his deliverance. And when God sent his son, what did the angels do? They sang. They sang for joy, and so did, so did Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and others. And now we as the church, the redeemed in Christ, the bride of Christ, we sing praising God for his life, his death, and his resurrection, just as the scriptures tell us to. You think of Colossians 3.16, let the word of God dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Now listen to that again. Colossians 3.16, the very first part of that, let the word of God dwell in you how? Richly. 
Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Basically, let God's word permeate through you. Be all about you, encompass you, be thought, heart, mind, soul, everything, all about you. Let God's word dwell in you richly. How? That's what we're told to do, but then how are we to do that? By singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Which means what about these songs that we're supposed to sing? A very important truth about these songs that we're supposed to sing, they have to be filled with the truths of God's word. The songs we sing must be rich in lyrical content that is rooted in the word of God. Has to be. But what is devastatingly sad about our church culture is that we've got churches all over our culture that have and will split and people who will leave churches because they don't like the style of music that is being sung. They'll just pack up and leave because they don't like the style. It doesn't fit their their preference. But at the same time, these same individuals don't care a lick about the lyrical content of the songs. In some cases. They'd rather sing about their preferred style, regardless of the truthfulness or regardless of the depth of the song, care more about style which is a direct and sad reflection of the health of the local church today. But notice how in this song that we're looking at, how the melody hasn't been preserved. Do you notice that? Nor has the melody been preserved in any of the songs that we see throughout Scripture. But what has been preserved? The lyrical content. The lyrical content has been preserved. See, styles are going to come and go. And we all have our own preferences. There's nothing wrong with having our own preference. There's nothing wrong with having various styles that we like to sing more or or less of. They can be very helpful in helping us remember the lyrics. Music has a way of doing that, of helping us remember scripture, remember truth, remembering these things. But it's the lyrical content sung over and over, year after year, that does what? That's what helps the word of God to dwell richly within us. It's a natural way of remembering theological truth. It's a natural way uh, to remember and to cling to the promises of God. That is, if we're singing the promises of God. Let's face it, you're going to remember like songs way longer than you're going to remember any of my sermons. I understand that. I get that. I would love for you to remember all of my sermons, but I can't remember all of my sermons. So I can't remember even everything that I preached last week. So how am I going to expect you to remember everything that I preached last week? But what do songs do? They stick with us. They stick with us. And they, they, they have a way of, of being with us. I mean, I can, I can quote songs going all the way back to my childhood that I haven't heard in years. And you can do the same. Right now, if you drop the beat to any number of songs, whether it's Vanilla Ice, yep, Date my, I can go there. Uh, Garth Brooks, Alan Jackson, John Michael Montgomery, got a little change in genre. I can even drop down a little Nelly from back in college. I, I can go all of those different spots. And don't forget the sitcoms that always had the catchy song at the very beginning, right? I have not watched The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in 20 years, but in West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playgrounds where I spent most of my days, chilling out, and I, I'm not going to keep going. But I could... And I haven't 
listened to it in 20 years. Why? Because music sticks with us. It embeds down in our soul. We can go back to where we were at a time and a place and where that song was happening. And be like, oh, I remember that. Oh, oh, yeah. And we get all these different floods back our memories. Why? Because songs stick with you. And that's why it's so important to make sure that what we're singing as a church, as we gather to worship, and what we're singing in our own private family worship times, that is going to cause the word of God to dwell in us richly. So imperative that we are singing truth. And let's be honest, a lot of the stuff that is out there today called quote, unquote, like Christian music, I mean, it, it is not even untrue. But it's not even true. Like it does not have enough substance to be either true or false. It's just there. And we need depth. We, we, we need truth. And we need to let that dwell our hearts richly as we sing. Number two, God's people sing about God. So notice how the entire song is filled with truths about God. Truths about who God is and what God has done. And truths about what God will do. All throughout this song, look, look how they're singing about his triumphs there in verse 1. And in verse 18. Or 21, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. They're acknowledging through song that God alone is the source of their victory. He has thrown the Egyptians into the sea. They've done nothing to earn this. They're giving praise to God for his triumph. They're singing about his strength, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and what will they do? And I will praise him. And church, if we are in Christ, we know the same God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Christ is the radiance and the glory of God. The exact representation of God being found in Jesus who has become our salvation. Church, this is our God. And we shall ever praise him. Ever let this song be radiating and flowing off of our lips. They're singing about the covenant-keeping promises of our great God. Second part of verse 2. Notice this, my Father is God, and I will exalt him. They're declaring in song that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob have all come true and are coming true, and they're declaring this in song with confidence and boldness. And that's closely tied to what they're singing about the unchangeableness of our great God. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Remember this name that, that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. This is it. A capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Referring to the personal name of God, Yahweh. Meaning he's the self-existent, eternal, unchangeable God. The God who brought Israel out of Egypt is the same God of the burning bush. The God who of the burning bush is the same God who first made the covenant with Abraham. The Lord is his name and he shall be praised. They're singing about his uniqueness. Verse 11, asking the rhetorical question, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds doing wonders. And the answer to this rhetorical question, no one. 
No one is like you. No one comes close to you. He is completely set apart, unique, perfect in all his, his love, perfect in purity. He alone is awesome in his glory. Which is why they're singing about his steadfast love. In verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Everything God has done for the people of Israel has been a testimony of his steadfast love for his people. He kept his promises, how? In love. He redeemed them, how? In love. He guided them in love, and he will continue to guide them in love. And the same is true for us. As we look at verse 17, is the confident declaration of a future reality for them and for us. It will be for them in the present reality of going into the promised land. It is a reality for us that God is creating a new heaven and a new earth where we will dwell with him richly. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. He's looking forward with the promises of God and he's seeing the promises of God with confidence. And they're singing about with eternity in mind. Verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So what they're singing of is the eternal nature of God's salvation. And it's the eternal nature of God's salvation because it has been made possible and it holds true because of Christ. Our commentary, one commentator summarizes it this way. A grand theme of scripture appears at this point in the song. Even though God has graciously come at various times and ways, most fully in Christ, to the place where we live, it has always been God's plan that his people should, because of the work of Christ, eventually join him where he lives. The story of ancient Israel mirrors this. God called them out of where they had been born and had been living, Egypt, bound them to himself in a covenant at Sinai and again in Deuteronomy, and then led them to his holy dwelling, Israel, Jerusalem, the temple. The same sort of thing happens in Christ, yet on a greater and more lasting scale. God calls those who believe in him out of where they have been born and are living, earth, binds them to himself in a new covenant, by believing in Jesus as Savior and Lord, and then leads them to his holy dwelling, heaven. See, all of Scripture ties together in one unfolding story of redemption. Because within that holy dwelling that we long for one day will be God's people, a people comprised of peoples from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, living in God's place under God's glorious rule. And what will they, what will we be doing in those moments? We'll be singing. We'll be singing. We'll be singing individually and we'll be sing, singing collectively. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. Flip over to Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, where John writes of the vision of the Lord. Writes the vision that God had given him. He's trying to pin it down into words about the end times, the consummation of all things. And in that vision, he hears this song. Again, look with me at verse 3. 
and they sang, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. So even then, thousands of years later, this old song continues. But that's not all that they're singing. As the old song of salvation is joined with a new song of salvation and the song of the Lamb. They're singing the song of Moses and they're singing the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. And church, if we're in Christ, this is our song. If we are truly in Christ, our songs will forever sing. Individually and collectively together, there is no one like you, O oh Lord. There is no one who compares to you. Why? Because we have been redeemed. But we don't just sing about God. We also sing to God. God's people sing to God. See, it's not enough just to know and to say true things about God, to have a bunch of facts stored in our head. No, truths like this, like we have before us that we've just looked at, aren't simply facts to be known and to hold up here. No, they're meant to engage our heart, to engage our soul and mind and lead us to worship the one that they represent. Just remember the context of this song. They've just been saved by the work of God's mighty hand. And they're singing in response to their salvation, both about God and to God, who is the source of their salvation. And it's natural. They desire to do this. Now, why singing? Because that's what people created in the image of God do. Even in a fallen world of which we live in, music still plays a, a monumental role throughout every culture. Culture after culture throughout history, songs have always been instrumental in just telling the story, expressing emotion. You, you see, like, it's emotion and poetry and teaching and wisdom and love and expression and thoughts and declarations coming all through song, all throughout history. Whether it, it's a genres of, of hip-hop or rap or country or alternative or contemporary or classical or opera or whatever name or title you want to put with it, we have songs for when we're happy and we have songs for when we're sad. We have songs for celebration and we have songs for mourning. Songs are a God-given way of expressing what's welling up in our heart in any particular moment. In one of his last sermons... Dr. James Montgomery Boyce described music as a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God and his truth in meaningful and memorable ways. It is a case of our hearts joining with our minds to say yes, yes, yes to the truths we are embracing. Which is another reminder why lyrical content is so important. We want both our heart and our mind joining together in embracing truth with yes, yes, yes. We don't want just mere emotion that is void of truth. This is what the Israelites were doing on the shore of the Red Sea. They were saying yes, yes, yes to the power and the glory of God as it had been revealed to them in their salvation. 
We see in verse 6 how they're singing to God, not just about him, but to him. Your right hand, O Lord. Your right hand, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Verse 10, you, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank in the mighty waters. Verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love. See, they're not just singing about God. They're singing to God. You are these things, O Lord. And I believe the O Lord there is crucial. The O right there. Because theology without the O is theology without knowing God, like knowing God. You may have known God mentally, but you're not knowing God like heart, soul, mind, and strength if you don't know the O that comes here. Like it, the theology without the O, it's dry. It's boring. It's merely academic. That's not the God of the Bible. Good theology is intended to drive our hearts to worship, to fan the flames to worship. It's intended to impact our emotions with biblical truth, not just mere emotionalism. It's not your right hand, Lord, glorious in power. We're not singing that. We're not singing your right hand, Lord, glorious. No, we're really singing your right hand, oh Lord, glorious in power. It's welling up from within us. It's the oh that's coming out. It's coming from a soul. It's not just singing facts, but singing facts that have and that are changing our life. Singing truths that are a declaration of who God is, what he's done, and what he promises to do. And we're saying yes, yes. Yes. As we gather individually, as we gather collectively, we're saying yes, yes, yes to what God has done to redeem us, to bring us to salvation. It's a combination, church, of heart, soul, mind being impacted by what God has done. That's where the O comes from. So when we gather together as the people of God, as we sing, there there are three things taking place. Well, there's three things that we're going to point out today. There's a whole lot more, but three things that we're pointing out today. One, we're, we're individually and we're collectively worshiping the living God. We're praising him for the salvation that he has obtained for us in Christ. Two, we're encouraging one another in the faith. We're encouraging one another in the faith. We're collectively saying as we sing, yes, 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 to, to the great truths of the gospel. And oh, what a testimony it is to the weary souls that are gathered to hear fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters who, who we know because we're doing life with one another. We're getting to know one another. And, and we know that they are going through difficult seasons. Yet, even in their difficult season, they're able to say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. What is happening in that moment? It's a combination of mind and heart joining together to praise God. To give testimony to, yeah, I don't know how this is going to turn out on my end, but I know ultimately how it's going to turn out. You are going to receive all glory of God. You have this under control. We're making a declaration, and that is encouraging. 
It's overwhelmingly encouraging to those in the congregation. So yes, chiefly we are singing about God and to God, but we're also singing about God to one another. There's something about having the voices of the congregation being heard from one side of the room to the other, hearing one another singing and encouraging each other through song. It's encouraging one another through sound theology that is proclaimed through song. And again, it's teaching. These are the songs that are going to last with you far longer than any sermon. I want sermons to be more like this. Year after year, a drip, drip, drip. Just slowly be making impact. Drip, drip, drip. Just a wearing away and teaching and encouraging every year. But songs, those are what we're singing in our homes. Those are what's popping in our minds as we're going down the road. Those are what's going to be sung at our funerals and our hospital beds. We want them to be encouraging us with the truth of God's word. Teaching our little ones through song. I'll have Zach put it on the internet later, but one of our own, Rebecca Hall, did a wonderful, with some of our other folks, a wonderful little album that's of scripture that is put to song for children and adults to be able to memorize. Fantastic. There's other music out there like that as well. Awesome way to remember and to teach through song. And yet there's still another work taking place as we sing as a congregation. Our singing serves as a means of evangelism. Because without fail, there are those in attendance week after week who are unable to say yes, yes, yes. They don't even desire to say yes, yes, yes. And maybe they're actually even thinking, what in the world are these people saying? Singing about blood and wrath and redemption, like I don't get it. But yet they're singing with such emotion. They're singing with such passion. They're singing with such conviction. conviction. There's got to be something to this. Because it's like, I, I don't believe this, but they sure do. And I want to know more. There's something there to this that we go back and it opens up doors for evangelism. But what we're doing when we're singing, the song's laced with gospel truths and doing so with heartfelt emotion is we're evangelizing. We're proclaiming the gospel through song. And the key word there is we. We're doing this together. We, the redeemed people, are joining with what redeemed people throughout history have done. We're singing a song of salvation. So what we're going to do now is we're going to briefly pray. And then we're going to sing. And we're going to sing in response to what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for the gift and the ability to sing. Thank you for allowing us as the church to gather together and sing songs of praise about you and to you week after week. And thank you most of all for the redemption that is found in Christ. And the reason for which we sing, thank you. And it's to him we collectively sing now. In Jesus' name, amen.